Everybody and welcome to another episode of the Fear the Phoenix podcast. Been a while since I last recorded, and I apologize for that. Uh, February got a bit crazy, and then obviously March has been like nothing we've ever seen before in our lifetimes. Um, but even though college basketball and sports in general have disappeared, for the time being, we can still talk some Green Bay hoops. My name is Brian Dickman, and I'm happy to be joined once again by my friend Jim Saro to help me recap the Phoenix last few games of the 2019-2020 season. Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast again. Thanks for having me. I always love talking a little bit of Green Bay basketball. And uh, definitely, when I think about how the season ended uh, down in Indianapolis, I needed a couple weeks off anyway before I could talk about it. So your timing is great today. (laughs) Yeah, well, I hope you're doing well. I hope your family's doing well, getting through the, the quarantine one day at a time. Um, you know, I, I didn't really want to talk about the coronavirus because that's pretty much consuming everyday life right now. Uh, but you're right. You know, it, it's crazy to think that that game was basically two and a half weeks ago. It feels like it was two and a half months ago, <laughs> based, you know, with everything that's gone on. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is... I had to look at my notes for uh, the game. I'm like, oh, man, I totally forgot that that happened. And normally my mind, while I'm getting older, isn't as good as it used to be. I'd still remember a game from two weeks ago. So, Right. Yeah, so uh, with the sports world grinding to a halt, uh, instead of talking about a potential upcoming collegeinsider.com tournament postseason game, we're just going to take a look back at Green Bay's two games in the conference tournament. Uh, we'll talk about the tournament venue format, um, get a quick look ahead to the off season, and anything else that comes up. Does that sound good? Awesome. Let's do it. All right. So Green Bay finished off the regular season with two straight wins at home against Youngstown State and Cleveland State to clinch the three seed and a first-round bye in the conference tournament. Ultimately, it was Oakland that came to town back on March 5th for a quarterfinal matchup at the Resch Center after the two teams split the season series with each team winning by four on their home floor. So my first question obviously has to be about your pregame tailgate because you, you posted a picture of your, your parking lot set up there on Twitter. And, you know, I was just overcome with jealousy because I wasn't able to go to this game. Uh, There's really nothing more green Bay than tailgating. So I'm just curious how the tailgate went and more importantly, will this be a reoccurring thing? Because I think it's amazing. Well, I can definitely tell you that I would do it 
uh, again, and it was awesome. And a lot of random people stopped by. A lot of people I knew uh, stopped by. I, I definitely liked it for that game because it was a big game. And I wanted to go into the game personally and with my friends who were at the game, kind of, uh, you know, on a high, if you will, like ready to go have a good time. And I think the people that stopped by also really appreciated and walked into the rush, uh, ready to go, ready to have a good time. Uh, as far as why we did it, one, nobody ever does it. So I thought that'd be fun. Two, it was a big game. And uh, three, two of the guys that were with me have no affiliation to Green Bay at all. So I had to put a little something extra special together to get them to drive up from Milwaukee for the game. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, so pretty decent turnout for this game, actually. Uh, 2,439 was the official attendance. And the crowd seemed to be engaged and loud throughout the game. And that even came through on the ESPN Plus broadcast, so I'm sure inside the building it was great as well. Uh, are you going to claim credit for that atmosphere uh, because of your your tailgate, or uh, or what do you think? I think that my fine friends who manufacture, or I should say distill a fireball, they can take credit for that <laughs> because I doled out a lot of fireball before the game. Uh, but I, did, I do agree. While 2,400 in terms of numbers wasn't a big uh, turnout for where the program has been. It was one of the better turnouts for the season. But the most important thing, and I say it all the time on Twitter, you and I have talked about this, is it doesn't matter the size of the building. It doesn't matter necessarily the size of the crowd. What matters is, is the crowd engaged? And I thought the crowd was engaged in that game from start to finish, and in particular in the second half when uh, Green Bay was starting to pull away. They really, really uh, made a difference, I felt like. Absolutely. And yeah, you're right. Attendance was down this year, but actually that crowd of 2,400 was the the largest crowd for a Horizon League tournament home game they've had besides obviously the uh, 2014 semifinal, which we're never going to talk about ever again. But um, I was surprised to see that, you know, for a Horizon League tournament home game, those don't usually draw very well. In this game, actually, that, that was a pretty decent number, 2,400. And you're right, they were all engaged so that was a good thing but so for the game itself uh green bay leads for almost the entire first half they led by as much as seven several times in the half despite shooting uh only 37 percent from the floor um they actually led by eight at 29 to 21 with three minutes left in the half and then oakland goes on a a 9-1 run to tie up the score at 30 at, at the half and you know at that point i was kind of thinking about how these teams had played a couple weeks earlier in a a double overtime thriller. And I kind of assumed that that game was going to be heading that way. Uh, I I don't know if you felt that way too. Well, I definitely, um, first of all, have to apologize to all Green Bay fans because that 9-1 run you talked about, that was right when I was using uh, that time to get more beers and go to the restroom for a reload. So that's really (laughs) my fault. Um, But I took my eye off the ball for a little bit. No, but all kidding aside, I never felt like Green Bay was not in control of that game, even when that run was happening. Like they were from where I sit, which is right on the court on the baseline by the Green Bay bench. Like I, I, I felt like the team was really engaged. I thought like some of the things that they couldn't do against Oakland in Oakland, like k- keeping uh, Oladapo off the glass or you know keeping a post presence on Xavier Hill Mays, they did a significantly better job all game in those two regards. I thought Manny Patterson, uh, with help, uh, was awesome on Xavier Hill Mays. I mean, Hill Mays was only 5 of 11, 
11 points and three rebounds. I mean, you think about that for a second. He killed Green Bay in Oakland, and he only had 11 shots, only had 11 points, three rebounds for as big as that guy is. I mean, that says a lot for uh, Green Bay's defense. And it's not like Oakland shot the ball very well. They were 5 of 29 on three, so they had a ton of rebounding opportunities. And so just the fact that they were able to slow him down, they beat him to a spot in the post. Uh, Xavier Hilmaze was exhausted coming down the court multiple times in the first half. I just thought that they did a way better job than they did against Oakland in Oakland. You're right. Yeah. And the three rebounds for Hill Mays really jumps off the page. I'm pretty sure that was a season low, at least in the conference season. Um, you know, that we're talking about like a first team all league type player there. So that was really impressive. Uh, so, but after halftime, so Oakland actually scores the first bucket of the half. They go up three, but then it was basically all Green Bay after that. Uh, they outscored Oakland 48-33 in the half, despite not making a three-pointer, which I thought was pretty crazy. Uh, they shot 58% from the floor, outscored Oakland 28-6 to in the paint in the second half, held Oakland to shoot, uh, shooting 33% from the floor and three for 15 from behind the arc. Uh, so all in all, that second half was pretty awesome. Uh, I put together a little highlight package with uh, Brian Kuklinski's uh, calls and, and music because – I thought it was it was awesome. it was one of those performances that I, I'm going to remember for quite a while. I think. Yeah, I mean, there were times this season where fans were up and down on the team, and that was just like the perfect end for the home season. It was probably I felt like the best game they played, uh, or one of the best games they played all year. Certainly, the game at Northern Kentucky was probably up there as well. But you know, a couple other stats that I thought jumped out the, off the page, and you did you broke them down by the half. But points in the paint, Green Bay for the game forty six, Oakland twenty two. Again, think of the size advantage and the way that they totally annihilated Green Bay in Oakland. And then fast break points, uh, nineteen to four for Green Bay. Highlighted, I'm pretty sure Amari Davis had a uh, pretty cool dunk in the second half. Williams has it poked away. Now Amari Davis comes out with it in transition. Davis with the one hand dunk down the left side. And Coach Greg Campy is calling timeout. Audio courtesy Learfield IMG College. Like I said, my friends at Fireball may have uh, helped that stay a little blurry. Uh, and then you mentioned it too: thirteen three pointers, or you know, they didn't take a ton of threes. They only they were three of thirteen, which isn't great, but they didn't take that many of them. Whereas Oakland was five of twenty nine, right. and Rashad Williams himself was three of fourteen. So they didn't shoot themselves out of the game got the ball inside, limited Oakland inside. I mean, just like an awesome, awesome game, especially since Oakland's advantage isn't on the perimeter. They got them to be on the perimeter, and Oakland's advantage in the paint, they nullified. So it was just awesome. Right, yeah, and I noted that uh, Rashad Williams, he ended up with 15 points, but seven of those came at the free throw line because you, you're right, he's, he was three for 14. So that was pretty <laughs> impressive defense on him. And, yeah, Oakland was without Trey Maddox, who, who's now in the transfer portal, by the way. And uh, Brad Brechting was playing hurt, but still a great performance from the Phoenix. Four players in double figures. Mari Davis had 19. Cody Schwartz had 16. Ten of them came in the second half. Um, Jaquan McLeod, 11. Cam Hankerson, 11. So you mentioned Maddie Patterson before. He had eight points, 10 rebounds in 32 minutes. Uh, obviously not gaudy numbers, but you know, stuff that doesn't show up in the box score, like his defense on Hill Hilma- Maze and uh, 
you know, just dominating the glass. So another solid performance from Manny in that game. Yeah, he had a great game. Those other guys, it was just a total team effort. Lots of guys played hard. Uh, you know, Cam on defense was great. Uh, one thing, I a little conspiracy theory for you. I haven't said this to anybody else, and I'm not saying it's true, but I found it interesting that Trey Maddox was a late scratch in that game. Uh, I talked to Neil Rule after the game for a minute, and he said that he was sick, but then he was in the portal like two days later. So maybe there is more to his illness than meets the eye. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's a fair conspiracy theory. Hey, but, uh, why not? Anyway, it's our podcast. We can say what we want. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So 78-63, that was the final score, sending Green Bay to the Horizon League Tournament semifinals. Uh, with some momentum against the number two seed, Northern Kentucky. And uh, so this was the game that you were at down in Indianapolis a uh, couple of Mondays ago. And, uh, you know, much like the Oakland game, the first half, not really pretty basketball. Uh, Green Bay raced out to an 11-2 to lead, but cooled down significantly after that. Uh, you know, they still left or they still led for most of the first half, despite shooting 32% from the floor, one for 10 on threes. Uh, NKU wasn't much better at 39%, but uh, Green Bay goes plus 10 at the free throw line, which which gave them the uh, the halftime lead. Uh, what, what were you thinking there in that first half down in Indianapolis? You know, in that particular game, I was um, sitting there and – when they had the big lead right away, you're like, okay, maybe this is just like when we played played at Northern Kentucky. We can run them out of the building uh, right out of the gate. But as the game went along, the game got played the way Northern Kentucky wanted to play the game and not the way that Green Bay wants to play the game. And that's kind of evident when you look at the stats afterwards. Uh, fast break points, we were uh, minus 11. You know, there was seven for Green Bay, 18 for Northern Kentucky. Uh, three pointers. Green Bay took 20 of them in the in the game. Uh, Northern Kentucky, who takes a lot of threes, took 22, but basically went to the perimeter. Never really got the ball moving inside. It got a lot of one on one. Guys like Jaquan had to make really hard shots uh, when they were playing, and ultimately, it just felt like, especially as the game went along, that uh, you know we weren't going to get over that hump, but because the game wasn't being played the way Green Bay wants to play the game, uh, so that was very frustrating. And in particular, if you look at the uh, box score, at the 11.57 mark of the second half, Green Bay was up five. At the 8.14 mark of the second half, they were down six. So that was a 15-4 to run in three minutes and 43 seconds, and that was the game right there. I mean, they stalled out. It was like Green Bay versus Northern Kentucky at the crest where Green Bay's offense stalled out again uh, for a short period in the second half. Same thing happened. So it was a very, very frustrating way to end the season. I agree. Yeah, I made a note of that. Uh, you, you know, Green Bay led by five at the under 12 media timeout, like you said, but then NKU goes on a run. Uh, Green Bay did get back within two at 62 to 60 with 440 left, but, um, you know, it, it never really felt like they could get over that hump, like you said. Um, yeah, it was this. NKU steals, seals the game at the at the free throw line. The final score is eighty to sixty nine. Yeah, but yeah, that was just a tough. Just game. it was so much. Uh, the deep, uh, Northern Kentucky really just took away anything that Green Bay was doing. The ball wasn't moving. Guys were. I mean, they have to go one and one a little bit in Green Bay's offense anyway. But they really just. It was like get the ball and nothing else happened. There's no. 
um, no working inside back. I was just going around the perimeter and guys late in the clock, putting up tough shots and not because they were selfishly doing it. Just like, that's all we could get going. It was very, very frustrating. It wasn't a, a classic green Bay offensive display and their offense had been so good for most of the season. And that was really uh, not one that they're going to put it in the highlight reel. <laughs> right. Yeah. Green Bay fell to Oh and eight when scoring 72 or less in a game, which makes sense because you know, you obviously, if you don't score a lot of points, you're not going to win all the time, but I think that speaks more to, you know, if the if the tempo is slow, they don't really have a good chance to win the game. And this, the tempo in this game definitely favored NKU. Um, the other interesting thing I wanted to note because I've had multiple people ask me about this was basically why doesn't Manny Patterson play more? <laughs> so Manny Green Bay was six and two when when uh, Manny Patterson played twenty five minutes or more, including the win at Northern Kentucky. Four and seven in games where he played less than ten minutes, including two losses uh, against NKU. So I mean, I get people's frustration. Obviously, the coaching staff sees um, you know matchups and and things like that. But just kind of interesting when you see the numbers like that: six and two when he plays twenty-five or more minutes, four and seven when he plays less than ten minutes. You know, I, I can't say it would have helped or wouldn't have helped to play him more. But one thing I took away from on that line of thinking, like like when I was sitting on the court before the game, I was watching NKU warm up. And one of the drills that all their big guys do is basically stand uh, back to the baseline in the short corner and they pass in the ball and they work on layups and reverse layups. And when you think about that game, uh, I think it was Adrian Nelson had like four or six points, basically getting the ball dumped to him while he was, back to the baseline in the short corner and he goes up for a layup. He doesn't even have to dribble and just goes right up and gets a layup. Where I'm going with that, Brian, is that NKU's big men are not really part of the offense in any way, shape, or form. They're not, they don't boast them up. They don't play on the perimeter. And so my guess would be that the Green Bay coaching staff is saying, well, Manny doesn't have a defensive matchup when Walton, um, Tate, Sharp, and, you know, Joko are in the game. He can't guard anybody so they're not playing him because he has nobody to guard that'd be my only logical guess at why they don't play him more um the flip side of that is put him in the game and have him post up and make nku bring a big guy in to guard him but uh when he was in the in the game in the second half he had a, a baby hook right in the lane uh right over his he was going over his left shoulder from the box and it didn't go in and that was all she wrote for manny after that <laughs> right yeah, and one other thing I wanted to bring up, you touched on the, the three-point shooting, five for 20 for Green Bay. Um, I know last time you and I talked on the podcast when we had Kyle Craven on, uh, Green Bay dominated with mid-range jumpers against that NKU zone in the first meeting. Well, they just they went eight for 30 in this game from mid-range, uh, which is you know, 26-ish percent. So that's not going to get it done against that NKU zone. So just all around a tough way to end the season. Um, you know, semifinals curse, I'm telling you, man. <laughs> Green Bay's made 16 semifinals appearances since 1995, the most of any team in the league over that span. But they're now 4-12 and in the semifinals, 2-10 and in their last 12. 
is that bad luck or is that just kind of more of a statement on Green Bay being, you know, an upper echelon Horizon League program that is usually good but not good enough? Or what do you make of that stat? Because I think it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, when I think about that stat, I definitely like I've gotten into it a few times on uh, Twitter and other places with fans from other programs like along something along the lines of you wish your program was as good and consistent as Green Bay's program is. But to your point, they don't have a lot to show for it and certainly not anything that people would notice and say, oh, well, they've made 10 NCAA tournaments or whatever. Um, so part of it, though, getting to the semifinals, I mean, I remember they they lost to a really good Cleveland State team in the semifinals that ended up going on and winning an NCAA tournament game. They lost to, in 2014, when they had, you know, one, one top 70 team in the country and, and had... Uh, no, no, we don't. Well, do I know, but you know, th- there have been some <laughs> things that have happened to them. They, right. the time that they lost uh, in Coach Wardle's last year at Valparaiso, I mean, they stalled out with eight minutes to go. I think they had an eight point lead fairly late in the second half. I, I believe you were there, right, Brian? <laughs> I was there in 2015. Yeah, the championship yep. game. But they, you know, they were right there on the cusp. But there have been other times where. Um, you know, when in the heyday of Butler, Milwaukee, like those programs were really good and Green Bay's program was good, but not really good. So it's been a weird mix of bad luck, being good, but not great. And, um, you know, a, a few missed opportunities. But in this particular case at the Horizon League tournament, the best team won, uh, in the best team at the moment won. And something that I wanted to kind of point out when you look at that NKU versus Green Bay game this year, uh, Tyler Sharp, 20 points, Jalen Tate, 23 points, Dantes Walton, 19 points. Like they only scored 80 points and there's 60 of them. That's your big guys doing big right. things in big moments. And you got to tip your yeah. hat to that. Right. Yeah, I agree. You know, it, one thing I just wanted to bring on uh, talking about this, bring up talking about the semifinals thing is, you know, it, it's frustrating to get so close and not make more NCAA tournaments. You know, even even making it to the championship game gives you that boost uh, that, you know, you get more exposure for the program because you're playing on the main ESPN channel with a million people watching. So you're right. Lots of missed opportunities. Um you got anything more to talk about on the court stuff at uh, this year's Horizon League tournament? Um, I think for, you know, in general, my takeaway from the program and from from that game against uh, Northern Kentucky is they came out ready to play. They were up big early. Um, but like I said, the, the better team at that moment won the game. And, uh, you know, it sucks and you hate losing and they were doing everything they could to get back into it. But at, at the end of the day, if it, it should make the returning guys more hungry and hopefully guys that are thinking about coming to green Bay in the future would look at that and say, Hey, they're right there. They just need a player like me to put them over the top. So. Yeah. Well said. So. Let's switch gears a little bit to uh, what seems to be every Horizon, Horizon League fan's uh, favorite pastime on social media, and that's complaining about the conference tournament format. Um, you know, first of all, I just want to start and say that uh, you know, as long as ESPN holds the TV rights, we are pretty much locked into a Tuesday night championship game. So, so any discussions about venue or format really need to revolve around that. 
I think we'd all prefer a weekend championship, but it's you know it's probably just not going to happen. ESPN tells us when we're playing, and the league seems to be you know okay with getting that championship week prime time time slot. Uh, so with that in mind, let's talk about Indy. You know, I don't think too many people were upset with the decision to move the tournament there from Detroit. Indy hosts Super Bowls and Final Fours. It's a great event city. Uh, but, you know, the decision to host it at IEPUI's arena, you know, that's a different story. But uh, but anyway, you attended the conference tournament in Detroit, in Detroit uh, at Joe Louis Arena, at Little Caesars Arena. And we said you were there a couple weeks ago in Indianapolis. You know, how is this year's tournament in Indy compared to Detroit? Uh, you know, as far as host city venue, you know, any, any you know, big takeaways that you may have noticed? Uh, okay, so... <laughs> Try to not be a total jerk here about this, but the idea of Indianapolis is great. What we executed in Indianapolis was not as good as what they were able to execute in Detroit. You know, a couple of things that I think are important to note, like Indianapolis is a uh, destination city for events, but not on Monday and Tuesday. Like there wasn't anything going on in downtown Indianapolis on Monday night. Or Tuesday. Um, so that part of it really didn't stand out to me. You know, when I talked to the people that were down there, other Green Bay fans, they were down there by, some of them were down there by Saturday. Most were down there by Sunday. Like they did some stuff because it was the weekend. So Indianapolis as a venue, it literally could have been on the moon because it wasn't like we're in New York City on a Tuesday night and there's still stuff to do. Um, the other thing that isn't ideal is the Fairground Coliseum a nice enough building renovated it is on the indianapolis fairgrounds that is about i don't know 10 minutes from downtown indianapolis so it wasn't like you could walk out of the hilton which is the host hotel and walk to the games like in detroit i walked from last year i walked from the greek town casino and hotel to the to little caesar's arena and i walked back uh after the game although that might have been a dicey call but um my my point in sharing that is like one event happened in downtown arena, in downtown, in the downtown, in a state-of-the-art arena, and the other happened in a renovated cow barn ten minutes from downtown. So it lacked a little bit of the uh, you know big-time event feel. Um, there are some other things about the venue. I mean, we can go into any questions that you have in particular, uh, but that's my kind of comparison between the two: is that one was a big-time arena in a downtown environment, and one was a small-time arena not downtown. Right. Yeah. You know, obviously, uh, Little Caesars Arena is one of the newer arenas in the country. So obviously nothing really is going to compare to that. But how did it compare to like Joe Lewis Arena? Was it better than that? at least? Uh, you know, Joe Lewis Arena would be uh, an acquired taste would be my <laughs> description of that. Like <laughs> it had, you know, all of the trademarks of an old building with none of the cool um, characteristics. Like, you know, it's just an old rundown building. But even there, uh, you know, that was the first year of the tournament. I felt like it had a little more buzz. It had a little vibe to it. But I also say that the one year they played, or excuse me, the first year that they played at Joe Louis Arena, I did not go to the second year because uh, my son was born. But the first year that they played at Joe Louis Arena, that was the only year that I can recall that they ran a standard format tournament. All the men's teams were there and they played starting on uh, Saturday and went till Tuesday 
and you just had a way better overall inclusiveness of the of the league. I know we're not supposed to harp on the the format too much, but I didn't see IUPUI fans there. I didn't see Milwaukee fans there. I didn't see Cleveland State people. They had a few women's fans there, but they didn't, you know, nobody from Detroit or Oakland was at this thing. Like it's not inclusive of the entire league, the way that they run it. And it felt that way compared to at Joe Louis arena, which was not a great venue, but it was the event itself was inclusive of all teams. So I guess that leads me to what is your ideal format? Because we do have two more years guaranteed in Indianapolis uh, this was the first year they did the, you know, the higher seeds host the first two rounds with reseeding with the top two getting a double bye to the semifinals. Uh, did you like that format? Uh, obviously, next year we're going to have 11 teams, so that throws another wrench into it. But, you know, if this was your ideal format, would you go back to the the four straight days like we did in 2016, like, like the MVC does or, or what, what do you think your ideal format would look like? Well, yeah, I'll give you something for comparison. Cause I know this is a hot button around the league, but I did a little research on this and everybody says, Oh, go back to the, the highest seed hosting the championship. Like we used to back in say 2014. Oh wait, we don't talk about that year. Never mind. Um, but I want you to kind of, Look around. There's, I think, there's 32 conferences in the league or in the NCA for men's basketball. The America East, the Northeast Conference, the Atlantic Sun, the Patriot, and the Big South are the only conferences that host a tournament that looks like that. So, one thing you have to ask yourself is, who do you want to compare yourself to? Do you want to be comparing yourself to the A Sun and NEC and the America East, or do you want to be comparing yourself to, you know, the higher end mid majors? And then, of the the conferences that run up a hybrid of on-campus and neutral. That's the horizon, the Mac, and the SWAC. So, you know, one thing that I think personally is if you want to be a big boy, then put your big boy pants on and run a big boy tournament. So I personally would go to an 11-team format. I would start playing in Indianapolis on Saturday. I would have the first, the the number one seed get a double bye to the semifinals, I'd have the two and three seed get a single buy to the quarterfinals. And basically I'd have five, uh, excuse me, four through 11 playing in on Saturday. And then you'd have a couple more games on Sunday. And then on Monday and Tuesday, you'd have your semifinals and finals like you have them now. And then ideally I would keep the women's format as is, which would be, you know, on campus and then bringing them to Indianapolis for the semifinals and the championship. Uh, Because then what you're doing is you're creating a four-day Horizon League basketball event, something where fans from all the men's teams are included and the women's teams are coming at the end. And I know that that might not seem a little fair, and I and I have to be cautious how I say this, but there's not a ton of women's teams that are totally engaged in their, in their teams. Like you look at IUPUI had the best team in the Horizon League. They average 400 fans a game. So trying to do something to include them for all four days, right. they don't have a fan base to back that up. But bringing them in at the end when there's some momentum, I like that. So that's how I would run it. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but at the end of the day, we're committed to Indianapolis for two more years. So let's make it the best format we can. Because uh, what we're doing now is there's always going to be empty seats on a Monday and Tuesday night. Yeah. You know, I like that idea a lot. And it's still, you know, it. it actually adds a little bit more incentive to winning that regular season title, getting that one seed. 
um, because you would get that extra buy instead of, you know, the two seed only having one buy instead of the double buy. So I like that idea a lot, actually. You know, something else um, that I've been thinking about that I you know that format, and I just want to run this past you, get it off my chest while I have the opportunity. I looked it up. So <laughs> okay. UWM in the old format where the highest seed hosted, you know, on Friday and Saturday, and then, it, you know, it went to the uh, best remaining seed for the Tuesday championship. UWM played in the quarterfinals three times in that format. And they played in front of announced crowds. And these were at Valparaiso, Butler, and, or excuse me, let me do this backwards. It was at Valparaiso, Milwaukee, and Butler. They played in front of crowds of 1,100, 1,700, and 2,200. And the semifinal games that were happening when the non-host seed was playing were, were played in front of sparse crowds as is. So that old format rewarded right. the home team and created an event for two games, the semifinal that they played in and the championship game that they played in. The other games were played in front of nobody. There was no, you know, no buzz, no excitement, no anything going on in the building. And so one thing that, you know, people are like, well, you got to put this, the best product on TV that you can. We weren't doing that before in the old format, other than the championship game and the semifinal that the number one seed played in. And my other thing is Northern Kentucky, Wright State, probably Green Bay, Milwaukee, when they were hot back in the day, they would get big crowds for that. If they were the number one seed, they'd get seven, 8,000, you know, 9,000, 10,000 people at those games. But one of my things is no program in this league has a fan base that's drawing more than 4,500 people the vast majority of the fan bases aren't drawing more than like 32, you know, more than 3,200 people. And a lot of them are under 2000 people. So even if you were the number one seed, I don't see any of those fan bases that deserve the opportunity to all of a sudden pile on the bandwagon when the NCAA tournament is in sight and have 8,000 people at their game. Honestly, that kind of irks me. And uh, that's another reason why I don't prefer that old format versus the 11 teams format. I just gave you on the neutral site. Yeah, that makes sense. You don't want to reward bandwagon fandom. I I can get behind that. Um, But I guess that brings me to my next question. So the crowds in Indy, I I believe it was less than 2,000 was the announced crowd for the Green Bay NKU game. Whereas in Detroit, they they had announced attendances of of 5,000 plus. You know, was that kind of... um, is that just a more accurate count in Indy? What, what did you see? Was there actually less people by far in Indy, like 3,000 fans less in Indy? Or, or what did you see as far as, you know, a crowd attendance? Um, I, I think two things about that. Um, one is that in Indianapolis, like, it was just the the men's crowd or whatever, you know, 1,700 people on, on Monday night. The Farmers Coliseum has no, from what I can tell, no other than Indiana Farmers Insurance, has doesn't have a ton of corporate tie-ins, whereas Little Caesars Arena definitely inflated that number with all of their corporate tie-ins. And then at some of those games at Little Caesars, you had Oakland or Detroit playing in the past, mostly Oakland. They actually did bring some crowd, uh, you know, True. some people to the game that helped, uh, infl- you know, bring those numbers up. Uh, I know the Green Bay game in particular didn't look very good on TV for the crowd. Uh, the right state fans vacated the premises, if not at the final horn 
or before shortly thereafter they did not uh, care to stick around but they actually had a pretty good crowd i mean it's only an hour and 50 minutes from dayton to indianapolis and it's almost all expressway and so for them they did not uh, stick around. I think they might have had, had Wright State won the game, so it would have looked a little bit better. But they did have a sizable number of people there. Um, but, yeah, I don't think it was that many fewer people. I just think the way that's counted, the you know, a, a, a box score attendance is all distributed tickets, not necessarily all used tickets. Yeah, makes sense to me. So I, my last question would be, for your format, your four-day format, which I'm, I'm a fan, I'm behind that. Uh, is Indy the best spot to have it, or, or could you think of a spot that would be better for? It? I think Indy would be a great spot to have that format. I've really now that I've been there, and I was there for the Green Bay versus IUPUI game in February. I've been to the Coliseum twice. I don't know that the Coliseum will ever be a great place for them to play their tournament. It, it doesn't have a big time feel. It certainly isn't in a big time location. Um, you, you see like the big 10 women, they're playing at the uh, bankers life field house where the Pacers play. And then the big 10 men come in there. Like that's right in the heart of downtown. It's a totally different feel. So I like Indianapolis. I just don't know that I like the Farmers Coliseum, and that's I'm surprised to say that because I thought looking at the pictures of it and seeing how close it was to downtown that I would like it better, but it definitely doesn't have the right, um, just doesn't feel like the right spot for it. It kind of gave me um, like, you know, obviously at a much smaller scale, but like Bradley Center vibes where some seats are way off of the court because it looks like it's more of like a hockey type venue. Is that? Oh yeah. In the end zones of that thing, it's, I mean, those seats are way far away and even on the sideline uh, because it is a hockey setup, your, your front row, not the ones that are on the court, but your front row of the actual seating bowl is relatively far from the court as well. So I definitely, you know, I, I don't think that it's, built for basketball i mean again it's not a bad arena it's a little janky when you're walking around the concourses and there's like walls sticking out of nowhere and it's not a perfect circle and when you walk in like you literally don't know where to go because you go up a set of stairs that look like the fire escape to get up to the concourse level it's it's just a weird building uh it, it's nice enough and it looks awesome yeah. from the outside but uh, again it's it just isn't big time necessarily i'm not and i don't want to be ripping on it because one of the things i would tell tell any fan listening to this, even though I've just spent 15 or 20 minutes telling you that the building kind of blows and the location's not the best, go to the conference tournament. It's <laughs> really fun. At the end of the day, the reason I go every year, one, I do love Green Bay basketball and I want to support Green Bay. I want to support the Horizon League. Two, I make a lot of connections with people. I had a lot of good information, some of which is now proven to be true. Uh, so I always kind of like to be in the know. But I also talked to people. I talked to, uh, I spent 10 minutes talking to uh, the guy, Dennis Dye. He was the guy that's on the halftime show of uh, UIC versus Green Bay talking about the tournament. I recognized him from that, started talking to him. And uh, there were some things that weren't really going that well. Some of the fans didn't like him. And, and they were kind of complaining to me. You know, we we're kind of complaining about them. And I said, hey, let's get the guy who runs this thing. I brought him right over and he took notes down. And, he, you know, hopefully they'll fix some of those things for next year. So it, it just, you got to go to this thing, even if it's not the best, because it's our league. We want to do better as fans. There's only one way to do it. It's not sit on our ass and 
pout. It's, you know, get out there and, and be a fan and do your best. And on top of that, it's awesome basketball and you'll make a lot of connections and learn a lot of things that uh, if you're networking a little bit, you'll, you'll get some good info out of it. Yeah. I was going to say, despite the semifinal loss, I'm pretty bummed. I wasn't able to make it down there to Indy this year. Uh, I definitely plan on attending next year, though, if, if Green Bay makes it. And you have audio proof of that now, Jim. So you can pull this hey, up next year. I had <laughs> written proof that you were trying to get clearance from headquarters, and uh, somehow that didn't work out. So uh, I don't know if audio proof is – yeah, in, well, until yeah, I get you in a car driving down there, nothing <laughs> is proving that you're going to this thing. I, yes. Well, headquarters has a year – warning now so i will tell you my number one negative about this whole thing though i go to the bar i'm watching uh one of the women's games and it's not really going very well so i'm like oh what what should i do on a monday afternoon and i thought i should go have a drink so i walked up to the bar and i ordered a vodka tonic and i got this little dixie cup size uh vodka tonic and it was ten dollars so that was my only vodka tonic of the trip <laughs> so Drink it, yeah. drink at home. That's what I would tell you. Excuse me, drink at your hotel room. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. That's a good tip. Uh, so, with the season officially in the books, we've now entered the off season. Uh, Green Bay already had some off season roster movement. Uh, Hunter Chris entered the transfer portal. He'll be finishing his career at Binghamton next season as a grad transfer. So, congrats to Hunter on earning his degree from UW Green Bay. And going on to graduate school in the America East Conference. How about that? Two America East references in one podcast. That is definitely, if you had the over-under, <laughs> the over is the winner there. Uh, yeah, congrats to Hunter. I mean, good kid, played hard. Yeah. Definitely seemed like his confidence was a little rocked at points in time in his career in Green Bay. But, uh, you know, one thing that I thought was really interesting for Green Bay and for Hunter uh, leaving is that, a lot of the kids that have left in the past for whatever reason, they've done a really good job of graduating kids. I mean, Hunter would be kind of on the, on the uh, list with uh, um, Kieran Cantor and Hendo and Javon Smith and TJ Parham. All those guys walked out of green Bay with an undergraduate degree and then went on to do other things in basketball. So I I'd actually really appreciate that about our green Bay program is that they're not whacking kids off the roster who, you know, aren't scoring 10 points a game. They're truly living that motto of helping kids get an education like student athletes. And so I really appreciate that. And I appreciate everything that Hunter uh, did for the program. And I will say that in addition to missing uh, him, because he seems like a good kid, his dad is a really good golfer that had the privilege of golfing with the last two years. And it's going to make it way harder to compete in the Green Bay golf outing without him. So selfishly, I'm really mad. <laughs> yeah yeah hunter uh you know he always he didn't play that much this year so it was hard for him to get into a rhythm kind of but i agree he he filled his role well and he he represented green bay well so congrats to him again and, and good luck at binghamton i know i'll be cheering for him and i'm sure a lot of other green bay fans will be as well uh, so that opens up a scholarship for next season. Uh, do you have any preference on how to use that last scholarship? You know, you don't have to go into specific players, but I mean, you're looking for a project big man. Do you want a true point guard, a stretch four? 
you know, w- w- what are you looking for in that last scholarship now that, that, well, now that we've got one available? Similar to the Loch Ness Monster, I think I'm looking for a project big man. Uh, easy to talk about, hard to find, I suppose. But, I mean, when we think about <laughs> Green Bay, they're one of the things that we always continually talk about for them. Great offensive team, not necessarily the best defensive team or the best rebounding team. And part of that, like they have guys playing really great defense out on the perimeter, but, you know, having a big guy on that back line that can, you know, swat some balls out of there, grab some rebounds. You know, when you look at um, the impact that Brad Brechting had for Oakland, now a different style of basketball this year, but he certainly wasn't, you know, a high flyer, but he impacted the game because of his size. And I would love to see Green Bay be able to get a guy that they felt was athletic enough and could grow to be skilled enough that they could play him as a big man. So I'd love to see him get a four-year big man. Um, I don't know if that's in the cards, but that's my personal feeling of what would, what the roster needs. I'm in the same boat. I think a big man, like a rim protector, really, you know, Manny Patterson is basically the only rim protector they have on the roster right now, you know? Um, so I, I think I would go that way as well. Uh, you know, a high school kid, they, they take a chance on. Uh, that's what I would prefer. You know, I could also see them going shopping in the transfer market or, you know, taking another Juco transfer as well. So plenty of options to use on that last. Yeah. Roster. If they can't go, as I say, if they can't go big man, I, I then mean, I look at the rest of the roster and just say best available player that you get your hands on, like who's going to make an impact and preferably who can make an impact next year. Because if you, if you've got Amari and you have Tank coming back apparently in in full health, and you have you know Manny and PJ, um, you know there's enough pieces there. Uh, from what I understand, Josh uh, Jefferson's going to be a really good scorer for them. There's enough pieces there that an impact player, best available impact player, isn't a bad move either. Because the Horizon League, I think, is prime for the pickings next year, and uh, Green Bay should be right in there again. I agree. You know, if I had to pick a starting five right now, it, it would be Josh Jefferson, PJ Pipes, Mari Davis, Tank Hemphill, Manny Patterson. That looks pretty good to me. Uh, you know, still got Trey Bell coming off the bench, um, Chevalier coming off the bench. Uh, the Juco transfers obviously will play a big role um, coming in as juniors next year. So that'll be fun to, yeah. uh, to follow say, in the offseason. Blayton Williams is, I think that's how you say his name. Uh, I believe he's a top 100 Juco guy or right on the cusp of that. So he seems like he's a pretty interesting prospect coming in for Green Bay. So just, I, I don't see a drop off, even though the the pieces are changing. It's, you know, they're going to be able to score and uh, having anybody that can come in there and just help them uh, right away would be would be great if they're not going with a project bigger guy. Right. And it'll be interesting to see if there's any more roster turnover or if we're pretty much set after filling that scholarship. Um, you know, just based on the sheer numbers, I think there was over 700 transfers last year. So that, you know, that comes out to two transfers per team. So we'll, we'll see. Um, but hopefully not. And uh, one last thing I wanted to touch on, Jim, is the non-conference schedule for next season. You know, it's never too early to start thinking about that. We've already got eight known opponents, I believe, for next season. 
uh, plus two more games in the Horizon League Summit League Challenge. So that will leave only one more opponent that is unknown at this time. Uh, Kevin PYT on Twitter does an amazing job tracking all these non-conference opponents, so I, I really appreciate him keeping track of all these. But um, as far as I know, I've, I've got Green Bay playing four games in the Gothic Classic at LSU, at Syracuse, and then games against Mercer and Jacksonville State. Home games against Eastern Illinois, Montana State, and Northern Illinois. Road game at Wisconsin. And like I mentioned, two games in the Horizon League Summit League Challenge, one at home and one on the road. So with Purdue-Fort Wayne joining the league next season, that creates a 20-game conference schedule and leaving only one more um, non-conference game to be revealed. And you know, just looking at that schedule, there's quite a few mid-major games already on there. So I'm guessing that last one will be a, a road by game, which is fine with me, just as long as it's not a non-D1. Yeah, I'm definitely good. excited because from what I understand, the non-D1 games are out, and I think that's perfect. Uh, I actually think that'll help. I think that'll help the net too because yeah, that's great. This is a whole separate conversation we might get into later this year, but you look at net. You know, it's not necessarily about quality of opponent anymore. It's about who, you know, where did you play and did you win? And so playing some games that can count will be helpful in that regard. Um, I think a wild card in this, like, I can't pretend to be a contract expert, but I think most Green Bay fans understand that they have to uh, generate a certain amount of revenue off of buy games. And my general understanding is that Gotham Classic plus the Wisconsin game probably doesn't get to that number. So I will be curious to see what they do. I had heard a rumor that it might be a home game, but you know, I, I can't confirm that. And my math tells me it, it's probably going to be a road by game, but we'll see where they go. And uh, I, either right. way, <laughs> I think that what is the most important part of the schedule is that the starting, this is the last year that they're going to play in that gazelle group type uh, tournament. And this is something else for us to get into when we talk about scheduling. If you are, in the undercard of a high major tournament, you are cannon fodder and you are sinking your net. That is just flat out. Unless you can somehow get a miracle win, you are just not helping your numbers as a program. I think this year is a really great example that Green Bay didn't have great numbers. And throughout the course of the year, I was like, no, guys, they're better than their numbers. And lo and behold, as the season unfolded, they were third place in the league. They got to the conference semifinals. But a lot of people around the league are like, well, they got a net and a Ken Palm of 225 or 250. But part of that is that they played really hard games on the road, and you don't get credit for losing close-ish in the you know in most of the numbers. So um, I I will be glad when they're out of the cannon fodder category and playing games the following year where they can have a better chance to win. <laughs> I totally agree. Yes, scheduling is uh, definitely something we're going to – we could do an entire podcast on scheduling. So and, you know, and even though I just kind of was going off on the, the current <laughs> schedule, like it's no fault of Coach Darner and his guys. Like it's just a, a bad situation that they got into and with good intention, but it didn't work out. And now that you know we're coming to the end of it, like I think the program's going to do some things differently um, with the schedule going forward that I think fans are going to appreciate. Sounds good to me. You got anything else uh, as far as the off season goes? I, we just touched on the 
the non-conference schedule for next year, the Hunter Christ heading off to Yeah, I got two things. Uh, Number one thing, um, I'm a big no more Crest Center guy. Let's play at the Rush. Let's play at the Big Boy Arena. Uh, Again, another topic for another day. And you know, and the last thing I want to touch on, yeah. just a quick shout out, um, a thanks to Jaquan McLeod, amazing scorer, a thousand points in two, in two seasons, uh, a guy that looks like he's going to have a long career playing basketball. Also shout out to Cam Hankerson, tremendous, uh, four-year player for the program. I thought a, a gritty defender really improved his offense. And that's a guy I look at and say, he's my, Alfonso McKinney award winner, the guy that might just randomly show up on a, on an NBA or a G league roster someday. You'd be like, how did he get there? He's a 10 point per game college scorer, but he's just got all the tools. He's got the right size, uh, but a great player. Thank you for your contribution to green Bay. Uh, Josh McNair, some of the most unbelievable highlight dunks played super hard. Uh, when I think of Josh, like that game at Montana state this year was Josh McNair at his best. And uh, again, th- thanks for your two years. And then finally, uh, yeah. Cody Schwartz, I thought, uh, did a really great job developing that mid-range game, those pull-ups, like just a different player than the one that arrived three years ago. And also having a local kid come back home, a lot of people were interested in that. Uh, when I was having my tailgate at the Oakland game, two random people stopped by and I said, oh, you're a big Green Bay game, or big Green Bay fan? And both of them said, no, I'm here to see Cody's last home game. So, um I definitely appreciate the seniors. I just want to give them a shout out and say, I really appreciate everything you did as well as we talked about Hunter leaving. Appreciate you as well. So thanks guys. Wow. That's, that's well said. I can't think of a better way to end that, uh, th- to end than on that note. That's perfect. Uh, I will say Cody shorts had a, a quiet, really good senior year and I'll echo your, your, uh, your sentiment there. Thank you to all the seniors for, all the positive memories, but uh, that's going to do it for this episode of the Fear the Phoenix podcast. Thanks again for listening. Uh, I know I was only able to do a few episodes this season, but uh, I've got a few ideas for some off-season podcasts that I'm really excited about, uh, including you know the scheduling one and and the Crest Center topic with Jim. Well, that'll be a good one. Uh, I'm planning to do them monthly, or if events warrant, we'll do an emergency podcast, obviously, and and chime in sooner. Uh, and then, you know, in the lead up to the season, we'll maybe do them, you know, every other week. And then I really want to do them weekly in the 2020-21 season. So that's my plan. Thanks again for coming on and sharing your inside, Jim. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks again for listening, everyone. Stay safe, stay well, and we'll talk to you again soon.